If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 33 and we'll read that together. Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his, his inheritance. Still? Two, 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 check. There it is. Ladies and gentlemen, so uh, good to have you with us. Welcome to our visitors this morning. Welcome to those who are watching this online after the fact. You've missed a great uh, service today so far, a great gathering. Uh, very intimate feel. I loved singing uh, some praise to God with you just now. That psalm, Psalm 33, I feel so far in those little snippets from 1 to whatever we read then, 12, 14, something like that. I have a feeling that that actually perfectly sums up where we've come to as a church so far through this series. I've been really appreciating uh, Ian's input and suggesting that we do this series on the character of God. Ian's uh, direction to say, actually, let's look at this and let's look at that and let's look at this. Um, I'd love to run you through just briefly as a recap. I don't want to rehash it, but I want us to use where we've come from as a grounding to move forward today. Um, Because today we're looking at God, our provider, Jehovah Jireh in the Hebrew. And can I encourage you to jump back online and look at these sermons in our series if you've missed any of them. To to quickly recap our four weeks so far, in the first week we looked at our God is a lavish God, which you can see uh, in Psalm 33 there, uh, who provides for us in the sense that um, you come to the table like like a small child when he first sees a feast and his eyes bulge as he comes to this table. This is the lavishness that God has for us. And we want, uh, and our God wants to actually provide this banquet to to us. And this combats that idea of deism. This combats that idea that God doesn't love. Um, But we see Psalm 23, we see in Psalm 33 here uh, that God does love us. The second week we looked at that this lavish God is knowable. Uh, We had an Old Testament introduction, Ian preached that one. Um, And that how we come to know God, it's not as an individual, it's not me on my own coming to understand God, but actually God has revealed himself 
in a story through the scriptures and it's not just to one person but it's actually to one person in the context of a nation and that's for us today as well as we look at God provided today God is not just providing for me he's providing for me but in the context of us as community he's providing for us as we um as he meets those needs as part of a community it's not individualistic and as much as God might direct the hand of a nation uh, God's knowable characteristic is not fatalistic. It's not God wants you to be a robot. God doesn't want to control you in that regard. So we had that in week two. In week three, we looked at that God is righteous and just. This means that God is purposeful in his direction and his action. And this purposeful and direct God, it demands those who worship to be right and just in their actions also. And for that passage, we saw Amos 3.25. It's no good just singing worship to God like this because God doesn't need our songs. But actually, God needs us to do more than that. And then the fourth week, we looked last week uh, with Dr. Dan uh, Dan Patterson uh, that God's default stance is to bridge this gap between God and man uh, caused by man's rebellion and that God is actively at work to restore not only the relationship with those who know him, but actually God is there to provide hospitality to the strangers, to the foreigners, to the whole world. Our God welcomes the stranger in Isaiah 56. And so it's in this context now that we come to look at Jireh, God the provider. And it's with this background that we look and we see that we have a God of unlimited resource who is right and just, who by their very nature is communal Uh, who by their very nature is inclusive and welcoming of the stranger and foreigner. But when we look at this God and we look at everything that has been revealed about God, we've also got this disconnect. (coughs) We're constantly affronted by the reality that there is suffering in our world. So we have a God who wants to provide, a God who loves us, a God who is lavish, who is right and just, and then we have suffering. So you can't talk about God the provider without actually dealing with this issue. And so today I actually want us to wrestle a little bit with that thought. And I want to give us five minutes for a discussion in the groups. Thank you for broaching this subject earlier with us, uh, Lynette, to be able to actually uh, talk about, okay, well, where has God provided for you? Yes, so there's the individual, that's great. But actually, um, let's have a talk about how does God provide, not just how does God provide for you, but in what ways does God provide How do you see this provision of God? And then the hard one, how does the suffering in the world align or how do we deal with this problem of suffering and God's provision? Can you do that? I'll give you two minutes. That's a hard question. Two minutes. Five minutes. Let's give you five. I'll give you five, okay? Five minutes. Okay, so I'll just let the person who's speaking finish. Was that five minutes or was that two? I heard comments that you need a day to discuss this. You need a week to discuss it. I heard there's 40 passages in Job, 40 chapters in Job that talk about it that we could have gotten to. All right, I think that's most of everyone ready. 
So if we go around the room, if we wanted to uh, go around the room, if your conversations somehow touched upon uh, these big words, uh, sovereignty, um, predestination, uh, foreknowledge or free will, um, then you'd be right up there with the theologians. Did anybody say the words uh, sovereignty? Did anybody use the word sovereign? No. Did anybody use the word like it's just how God wanted it to be? Anybody say that? That's the path God took? No? Is, there it is, over there. It was in there. Good, right up with the theologians. The Lexham Bible Dictionary. Um, I've been right into the software this week, so I'm sorry I've been following all of these rabbit warrens. Um, the Lexham Bible Dictionary defines providence as uh, God's plan and interaction with his creation usually discussed in association with sovereignty, foreknowledge, predestination, free will, and evil. So you can't talk about providence unless you talk about these things. Now, as nice as it would be to really just, you know, oh yeah, well God, that God's allowed to do whatever God wants because he's so powerful, and we can just sort of leave that there, and, and then, well, that answers the question, and then we can ignore it. And I don't think that's actually what the point is, and I think... If we dig a little bit deeper into our scripture, we're going to find that there's something more to this than actually just giving a pat answer, or God is sovereign, or it was predestined from the beginning. Like These are all good ideas and good concepts to help us wrap our heads around this idea. Um, but I want to leave this tension in the room over this question, why does suffering exist as God provides? Because I think it speaks to the authenticity to our future hope that we're going to get to at the end of the message. Okay, so I love how this breaks us out of fake Christianity. If we say, oh yeah, God has saved us, everything is great and it's just how God wants it to be and everything was predestined to be this way. We say, well, that means everything is great, right? But actually, let's be honest, everything's not great. And it's also where the Old Testament and the New Testament texts actually leave us as well. Everything's not great in the world as it is at the moment. So let's have a a mature look at this. We want to wrestle with God over this providence characteristic. And I think this is where we're actually going to get to today, okay? So we want to wrestle with God about his providence. I'll say it again. We want to wrestle with God about God's provision. Let's test some Bible knowledge. Where is the earliest uh, passage of God's provision in the Bible? Anybody want to call out? Any thoughts? Oh, Genesis 1. Nice. I like that. I know that in 300 BCE, before the Common Era, before Jesus, our Greek and Roman philosophers had it written down as, in him we live and move and have our being. Everyone knows where that one's from. Um, Acts 17, by the way. And this speaks to that overarching plan for God's interaction with creation. You know, in him we live and move and have our being. That overarching plan of God's interaction with creation. That ongoing provision that every time my heart beats, that uh, every time the clock continues to tick, We are carried in this ongoing act of God's provision 
for humanity in time, as Dan Patterson said last week, as the uncaused first cause of creation. But that's Acts 17, that's New Testament. We're looking at Yahweh and his provision here, not necessarily New Testament text. What about Old Testament? We've got pre-fall, Genesis 1, thank you very much, Trudy. In the beginning, God, I loved it. Yes, by the very breath of God, we are established. Um, Sure, but the initial ongoing, the initial act of creation is not an ongoing act of provision. So let's go again. Where is the next provision of God? Clothes, that's where I went to as well. The clothing of Adam and Eve after the fall or at the fall. Um, I like that. Um, But actually for me, it comes one step after that. Because yes, God provides that and provides in that space of, okay, well, let's, let's provide for you in that first instance of, okay, let's set this new world order in place. But actually for me, uh, it's in Genesis 4 with Cain, Cain and Abel. Um, on, your pa- on your table, we've got all of the verses that I'm going to be referring through today on a single slip. If you wanted to look those up in advance, if you get bored with me talking, not that you would. Um, if you want to look those up along the way, I believe Genesis 4, 12 to 16. If you wanted to open your Bibles and just flick to that quickly, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. With Cain, this is where I believe the first instance of God's provision truly starts to be unveiled and, and opened up for us. And the reason I say that is because this man... Cain, who has done wrong, is now scared for his life. And he is wrestling, in a sense, with God. He says, God, I'm a marked man. This suffering is too much to bear. And God responds with a simple phrase, you are still mine. And that mark that I place on you, that's my mark. I'll mark you as my own. And anyone who touches you will be cursed. This suffering is too much to bear, says Cain, to a mentor, to a friend, to, I just can't, I can't bear this, to an almost father figure, to God, the closest of relationships, even though they're out of the garden. This suffering is too much to bear. It's in this wrestle with God about the suffering, even if it's self-caused, that we see God's act of provision for humanity start to be revealed. Yes, in this instance, it's for one man, but it's for the sake of a nation, for the sake of the world, that God starts his provision for humanity. And it starts all the way in Genesis. It's in this wrestle, in faith and in faithfulness, as we're faithful, with God, that providence occurs. You hear it. This suffering is too much for me to bear. God, I can't stand this. And yet the response, anyone who touches you will be cursed. I will provide for you. I will look after you. Even if your provision, you have to work super hard for it if you read the rest of the scripture around that. Um, Now, I want to take us through a survey of these Old Testament passages that I've put on on the table in front of you so we can see the development of this idea of the provision of God. And that cursed idea, why is that there? Why is there curse language in Genesis 4? 
we'll actually see that it's going to be carried through the entirety of this Old Testament and it's actually borrowed from the surrounding ancient Near Eastern tribes um, that were near to those people in that time. Um, In those days, this is 4,000 to 6,000 before Common Era, the treaty system between the nations was conducted between two parties. This is a treaty that has been started. And these treaty contracts, they came with blessings and they came with curses written into the contract if you did the right thing and if you did the wrong thing. You do the right thing, you get blessings. If you do the wrong thing, you get cursed. And these treaties were especially common in the relationships where one person in the group or one people group or one tribe had more power than the other. And these treaties are known as suzerain vassal treaties. And they're an amazing thing to look at if you want to go down the rabbit hole of of researching that. And here in Genesis 4, we have this starting language of a treaty between a powerful God and a weak humanity. And the majority of the whole of the covenant language in the Old Testament scripture mimics this style. God says, I am weak, you are strong. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is a two-party contract language. And if you're tracking with our lectionary readings um, through the newsletter, and I hope you are, um, in Genesis 12, this week's lectionary reading, we see the start of this contract language actually appear with Abraham's journey and God's provision for him as he wrestles with God. So if you want to flick to Genesis 12, um, it says, I will make you into a great nation. Those you bless, I will bless. Those you curse, I will curse. This treaty language, this covenant language, it opens the door for suffering to exist. It allows humanity and the nations of the world to either honour a treaty or to ignore it and then suffer its consequences. So if you're tracking with us in Genesis 12, less than four chapters on in Genesis 15, we have Abraham again. So by the way, in Genesis 12, I love how Abram tests God at his word. Actually, he doesn't even test. He goes, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to prepare myself. I'm going to go, yes, if this is where God needs me to be, I'm going to take everything I need to provision myself for the journey where I feel God is leading me. He packs up his wife and his family and his brother's wife or his lot's stuff, and he takes it all with him. This is great, right? And then when he gets to where God is going, he goes, you know what? I think God is calling me here. And he goes, actually, I see God's blessing here. And he creates an altar to God over here. And he says he's going to travel to the other side of where God says he needs to be. And so he builds an up and altar here. And everywhere he goes, from one corner to the other, he honors God in amongst it. And then four chapters later, we get to Genesis 15. And he goes, God, I believe you've got something for me. You told me to come here and you told me that you're going to make me a great nation, but it doesn't work yet. And do you know why? I don't have kids. My wife's barren. I'm really struggling with this. And in that wrestle with God, in that wrestle with God, that's where we see That's where we see what happens next. For Abraham, he saw the problem that his wife was barren. He says, no kids, how can I be made into a great nation without any children? In verse 6, we see Abram's response to the wrestling that he was having. Abram had to make a choice in the suffering. He had to say, you know what, I have to either believe 
or I have to not believe. I have to turn my heart to God's goodness in amongst this space or not. And we see what actually happens in there. Uh, Verse 6, as Abraham believed the Lord, um, read, he stepped out in faith and in hope. What happened? God says that it was, verse 6, it was credited to him as righteousness. This is the God that is righteous and just, and this is what he demands of us as we live our lives. And it's in this righteousness, in this justice, that God's provision is entangled, which is why I wanted to give us that context. So go back and listen to the sermon on righteousness and justice from three weeks ago. This treaty language, let's keep going, this treaty language becomes real for Abram, and then it became real for his descendants. Uh, Do we trust in God's provision? How do I know it's by God and it's not by me? Not by my own strength, because sometimes that happens as well. I'm going to provide and, you know, I'm going to call it God's blessing, but actually it's me doing the work. It's not God doing the work. I jump forward to Genesis 32. Jacob encounters that issue. He says, you know what? I'm not going to go until you bless me. He wrestles with the angel. He wrestles with God. Unsure if he should step into the land. I won't go until you bless me. And it actually sorts him out. He says, you know what? It's going to be in God's strength. It's not going to be in your strength. And and from that moment on, Jacob had a limp. It's like God said, I'm going to honor this treaty. I'm going to bless you. And you know, you will know that it's my work because it's too big for you to comprehend how you're going to rely on me. And so Jacob says, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to wrestle with you. And lo and behold, within a generation or two, the nation Jacob is now leading becomes both provided for during a famine and then enslaved by the people who provided for him. What a cause to wrestle with God over. Famine and then slavery. And then, of course, we get the next call of uh, Moses to ministry and we hear what happens with these people. As they've turned to God, they've said, you know what? I'm going to trust. I'm going to wrestle with God. God provides. And then in the wrestling um, of the Israelites with God, they've fallen into slavery and they say, God, why are we here? Why are we slaves? You were providing for us what's going on. And we have God answering, I've heard the cries of my people in Egypt. And he sends Moses to go and sort out that area. And so there is something to this idea. Prayer offered in wrestling as we're being faithful in our wrestling. You know, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. God, please help. There's something about prayer offered as we wrestle with God for his provision for us. By the time we get to Exodus 16, now we're jumping a whole book. By the time we get to Exodus 16, it's time for the nation to truly come to understand the depth of God's provision for them. The nation's so large, they got pulled out of Egypt. They've walked miraculously through the Red Sea. Um, It's time for this treaty language to be ratified by everybody in the company of Moses. 
It's nearly time for the Ten Commandments. But if we're going to bring the people to a treaty, and it's only been shown to Moses those secrets, and maybe, you know, maybe they got a glimpse of it as they walked through the sea, but maybe people are a little bit dumb sometimes. I don't know. They can't see that. Let's, let's actually bring these people to the table prepared to actually sign this treaty. How are we going to know that God is providing for his people before they sign the treaty? And so we come to Exodus 16 and we hear the people grumbling. They say, Moses, you've taken us out of Egypt. We're walking through this desert and you've brought us here to starve. This is grumbling once again. But instead of actually grumbling to the right person, they've just seen the miraculous hand of God. They're going, hey, Moses, Aaron, you guys are the ones that are causing us this problem. You brought us out here. And Moses is so right. He's like, hey, guys, uh, this is verses 4 to 7. I'm paraphrasing here. He says, hey, people, you're not actually grumbling against me and you shouldn't grumble against me because actually what's happening is God has brought you out here And even in your suffering, there will be provision. But all you need to do is actually point it. Point your grumbling to the right direction. You're actually grumbling to God. And by the way, be careful as you do it, he says. God here proves his provision to the newly formed ex-Egyptian nation of Israel. God the provider, Jireh, provides manna for them to eat in the desert. And he hears their wrestling and he hears their grumbling. Now, there's a passage in this scripture that I don't want to brush over. It's in verse 4. I want to make note of it for the sake of love for those that we encounter in our community and beyond. Um, In verse 4, it says, In this way I will test them and I will see whether or not they will follow my instructions. And there's almost this idea that, oh, If you test them and they get it wrong, then they deserve that suffering. You know, those people got it wrong, they deserve to suffer. Does that mean for us today that anyone currently suffering is to to be considered under the curse of God? I just want to point out this thinking is unhelpful and it's, it's almost tantamount to the Pharisees asking Jesus about which one of the blind man's parents sinned in John chapter 9. Can I reframe that verse in in, um, Exodus there? as God looking for the wrestling nature of his people. To trust God or not to trust God. God is desiring and wanting to hear their interaction and supplication. And then when provision happens, when provision happens, to whom are they going to ascribe the glory? That's the test. When abundance happens, will it be utilised for the community and for others and for the glory of God, or would it be used for greedy self-purpose? And you can keep reading in and around Exodus if you uh, want to there. This trust is built and, and God decides to enter into treaty with these people. His people end up entering into treaty with him. We end up with covenant relationship, and we see it in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 28. And this Deuteronomy 28... Um, version of blessings and curses that you see at the end of um, the Ten Commandments there. It's the same language that was used all the way back in Genesis 4. 
And so we see this provision of God coming all the way through from Genesis 4 all the way to the people of God. Now God's chosen people, now a nation, are enabled to see God's lavish love and his welcome for those around who would turn to him. You will be my people and I will be your God. Those you bless, I will bless. Those you curse, I will curse. Now we know how well keeping those commandments turned out for the Israelite nation and how then, uh, of course, we needed the final provision uh, for keeping the covenant was actually provided for us again by God in Christ Jesus. So I don't want to go too much longer on this other to look at God's provision in one final instance. And I think this really will help us to understand this idea of um, authentic suffering, perhaps, and what it means to wrestle. Um, I want us to look at the story of the poor widow and Elijah in 1 Kings 17, and this is around 900 uh, before Christ. Our passage is in 1 Kings 17, uh, verses 7 to 17. In this passage, I think we see an authentic experience of how faith and wrestling with God works. Elijah is directed to a widow whom God knows is faithful. Uh, In the last days of a famine in the land, Elijah directs her to sustain him as God has directed him. And the miraculous happens. Excuse me. She was going to have her last meal with her son and then die. And have my last meal, and then I'm going to die. There's a famine in the land. I'm going to do this, and then that's it. I'm calling it. But in sharing the last of their sustenance, God provides for them and sustains them all through this famine. Beautiful story. Until, after a time, the widow's son becomes ill, and then he dies. And in this, I think there is, there is sometimes true cause for us to reach out to God in true lament and in anguish and in wrestling and asking why. And we see that in verse 20 here. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you bought this tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? God, are you, why are you bringing this tragedy on me? And yet it's in this wrestling with God we come to understand that God is the one with all the power here. God is the one with all the power. This is that sovereign argument. But if we just go to that argument without understanding the suffering, we go to it without understanding the wrestle, we miss something. God is the one with which a single breath brought the universe into a being where we are sustained by his ongoing grace day by day. And Elijah wrestles with God in verse 20. If you are a lavish God, if you do love then bring this boy back. For Elijah, his wrestling through faith brought the widow's son back to life. For us, though, um, sometimes we have to live in that place of suffering. Sometimes there is no answer. And the prophet Samuel uh, sums it up well when he says this in 1 Samuel 2, 6-9. He says, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. 
For the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. And this is where we've come to, you know, as, as we close up. God's sovereignty in force, yet God's desire for us is to wrestle with God over the things that we see in this world that are not aligned with the kingdom. We wrestle in faith for the providence that we know God has for those that are faithful. The desire of God comes from God's own dissatisfaction with the world between what is not right and what is not just. And that's where we are now. In fact, as we wrestle and we grumble and we groan in amongst the suffering, we do so actually along with the Spirit of God. This Spirit who intercedes and moves with us in our groaning. If we jump to Romans 8, uh, around uh, verse 22. Romans 8. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For it's in this hope that we are saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? And so it's this hope, it's in this hope that we wrestle with God for his providence. Finally, I want to bring us to Christ. If there was ever a moment of bringing an alignment of wills, if there was ever a moment of bringing an alignment of wills, our will or God's, and God's will together at the same place, the Spirit of God willing and us coming alongside, if there was ever a moment of bringing an alignment of wills in terms of humanity and what God wanted, then we can actually look to Christ. In the groaning and the wrestling with God in the suffering, if there was ever a more true moment of testing if someone would be faithful or not, then we can look to Christ in the garden where he prayed through tears of blood, Luke 22, Father, take this cup of suffering away from me, yet not my will but your will be done. And in amongst that we see the faithfulness and we see the wrestling and we see the providence of God for us. And so we need to be wary of oversimplified solutions of neatly packaged doctrines that blind us to the pathos and feeling that our brothers and sisters, um, you know, they need our pathos. They need our feelings and our emotions as we look to God for providence. We're not just going to pray for, oh, I'm going to pray healing for you um, in your suffering and, you know, and then leave them alone. No, no, we're going to walk with people as we journey with them in their suffering. As a church, can we step into the space of wrestling for those that have lost the will to wrestle? Can we serve those in deep suffering and help them by engaging the providence of God as we 
as we are Christ in that space for them. Can we turn to the God of Cain, the God of Abram, the God of Jacob, the God of Elijah, the one who is lavish, the one who is right and just, who who desires treaty with us, peace, and who through the Spirit groans with us and loves us enough to wrestle with us to meet our need. And this is the hope that we have in Yahweh Jireh, God the provider. Let me pray. Lord, there could be so much said in this space. And yet, Lord, we trust you for our provision in that space of taking our next breath, in that space of allowing time to continue on in every tick. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for that creation moment where you breathed everything into existence. Lord, we want to wrestle with you now for those areas in our lives that we actually identify as, Lord, this isn't right. I don't know how to make a way here. Lord, I want to give space in this moment now for people to pray and wrestle with you for your provision. Lord God, hear our prayers. Lord, have mercy. Lord, for those areas where you have provided, we are just so thankful. Lord, we've, we've heard them, we've talked about them today, and we give all the glory to you for these things. Lord, we give it back to you. Lord, use where you have provided us for your glory, Lord, How can we steward the things that you have given us, the talents, the abilities that we've been able to accrue? Lord, let us use them to build into your kingdom. Lord, not for no purpose, not for our own gain, Lord, but for yours. As a community, as a nation, together. Lord, we ask for these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church.